Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. Chris Gethard is a comedian whose stories are often so serious and touching that they make people cry. And Jeff Rosenstock writes and sings heartfelt songs that are also witty and funny enough to make you laugh. So it's no wonder that these two are friends and comrades in arms. From practically the moment they met, they could tell they were on the same page. Now, Gethard has had a boundary-defying career that I'll try and fail to quickly encapsulate here. He's been a stand-up comedian, of course, but maybe more importantly, the host of a public access show bearing his name that eventually ran for three seasons on a couple of different cable networks and was, to put it bluntly, kind of insane. He spun his stand-up into an off-Broadway show about depression, alcoholism, and suicide called Career Suicide, which later became an HBO special produced by Judd Apatow. Somewhere in there, he started several podcasts, the most popular of which is Beautiful Anonymous, wherein he spends an hour with an anonymous stranger telling him their deepest secrets. I have yet to mention his books, his other podcasts, his appearances in movies and TV shows like Broad City and The Office, and more. But we only have so much time. Chris, I'm sorry. The occasion for this conversation is the release of Gethard's newest thing called Half My Life, which is sort of a hybrid tour documentary and stand-up special that he recorded at 10 venues around the country, including one with an audience of live alligators. It's available on demand starting June 1st. Check out a little bit of the Gatorland story right here. There's only 10 of these in the world. Imagine if I got eaten and killed by a creature where there's only 10 of them in the world. Shout out again, I've never performed in a comedy club that has an active overhead zip line before. That's so unfair to you guys. They put like a nice human child right above you on a zip line and expect you not to eat the child. Jeff Rosenstock has been making music in various guises and with lots of people since the late 1990s when he was in a ska punk band called the Arrogant Sons of Bitches. He went on to greater renown in Bomb the Music Industry before launching a pretty incredible solo career in which he combines super thoughtful personal and political lyrics with catchy, genre-blending sounds. So maybe it shouldn't have been a surprise when earlier this year he surprise-released a song-for-song reworking of his 2020 album No Dream called Ska Dream, on which he re-recorded every track but making them ska. He roped in amazing guests, too, from Angela Moore of Fishbone to members of Pup and Deaf Heaven. Check out a little bit of the track Ska, re-envisioned from the song B&B. It's a loving tribute to a maligned genre. Damn, your mama secretly been renting out your home. I used a shower sponge when you went to Spain alone. She told us it's been rough and you deserve to break. And marrying that guy obviously was a mistake. You had a couple kids, but now he's always gone. And you're such sweeping hair at your mommy's hair salon. The fact you have upstairs, now get the suburbs safe. It's riding low on bread and other In this conversation, Gethard and Rosenstock are unsurprisingly both funny and serious. They've got doubts about whether audiences will be there when they return from lockdown, but they've also got a relentless desire to create art and do the right thing at the same time. It's refreshing, and I hope you enjoy it. It's nice to hear your voice. It's also interesting to hear your podcast voice. Is there a persona coming through? Full, full persona. Yeah, when I sit at this mic, I go into beautiful anonymous mode a little bit, maybe. I think I'm most comfortable when I am performing in some sense, whether that's on stage or doing this, when I feel like I have some level of agency and respect 
And like doing stand up, it's like I have a microphone and lights on me and people are listening. That feels good. Whereas yesterday I was in a car with two other people and I was in the back seat in my head. Like my inability to participate in a conversation with three people is <laughs> making me sad. I don't know when to jump in and, and I just sit there worried. Is doing live comedy different in the sense that like when you tell a joke, everybody has to laugh basically at this point, like at the level that you're at? It's funny because I would say even even though you know I had the HBO special, but even with that, I would say like I'm a, I'm a a very solid mid tier comedian, like mid to upper mid tier comedian. I'm still playing like smaller venues. Some of that's voluntary. Some of that's because I'm not going to sell a ton of tickets in every town. I went on a tear where I was like, I want to go to comedy clubs to see if I can do it. Yeah, And performing on the third floor of a mall in Syracuse in a club that's next to a Dave and Buster's and across from a Margaritaville, it's not like the people who know me are in the rhythm of going to that club. So they don't always show up. It's really challenging, but fun in a masochistic way as a comedian, because your job at that point is to be more interesting than mozzarella sticks. And you're like, oh, there's like guys in affliction t-shirts and 80 year olds and I'm very happy to try to entertain anybody. And I think part of the challenge of a comedian is writing material that anyone can respond to. Yeah. But it's certainly an easier room when I go, okay, these are all gentle, beautiful, anonymous fans. Or I see like pink hair and piercings and I go, cool. Some of the Gethard Show fans are still showing up. It's certainly a better night for me at that point. Sure. It's less work. You know they're all in. And then you could let go. It's I feel like it's good on both ends because I don't know, we've ended up playing shows very specifically i'm thinking of this festival that we played in iowa our stage was free to go to so it was just like people in town going to it and yeah it's a different thing where you're just like okay i just gotta try to be good in a way that isn't like very specific to like this niche of fucking weirdos that i feel like i'm part of i have to be like anyone could look at it and it's okay and good i have been to shows where you see the opening band have an uphill battle is that the closest to bombing that musicians feel? Where you just feel like it, <laughs> like the room was, you never caught them and you feel so lonely afterwards? Bomb was on like a short tour. We were the first of four bands and we did bad every night. There were like 20 kids who I think maybe Saad was like, oh, okay, you could do this. And then like hundreds of people who were just like, this is noise and garbage. That feels pretty bad to just go on and be like, okay, I know that the next show is also probably going to be the same reaction and let's go harder in like the weird <laughs> direction and do things like play our set in order from slowest song to fastest song that you're just uh -huh. like, no one fucking cares what I'm doing. So I might as well have fun. I know you well enough to know that your answer might be different than others, but do musicians have a culture where there's a little bit of sick joy in those bombs? Because oh, comedians, yeah. there's joy in it. There's, like sitting around telling the stories of your worst bomb is a good time. It's great because we lead a very specific life. Yeah. And those are very like weird failures where the only way you really get through it is if you could find joy in those moments is if you could be like, whoa, take yourself down a peg. Yeah. If you don't have that, you burn out fast. You get bitter. And then all that jealousy of being in the entertainment business as we both are, Chris. Yes. But like yes. that shit where you're just like, oh my God, it's going so bad for me and it goes so easily, so well for this other person or whatever. Like all those things are toxic. It don't make you feel good about doing what you do. So I feel like looking at that and being like, ha, 
this is funny. We're playing in like the middle of nowhere and nobody wants us here and <laughs> it's so freezing cold in here and we're still playing anyway, that kind of thing. It's hard not to fall in that trap of kind of panicking and comparing yourself to others and being like, I started at the same time as this person and they're not dealing with any of this. And it's all, it's peaks and valleys though. Even in those moments, I'm a very, I'm pretty smart person, but I'm also very emotionally uh, afraid person. <laughs> so I'm able to objectively step back and go, okay, I can see the things I've accomplished in my life. And I objectively, I understand that on an intellectual level, I can recognize that I am a, a successful person to some degree. I am a su successful person to some degree. <laughs> I feel you. But there's always <laughs> self-doubt. Like after the TV show had some buzz and was cooking, I still had a night where I was hosting a show. And I'm not kidding when I say I was booed off stage four times in the same night. And it's hard in those moments to go, so I've done this and I've written books and I had the special and, and, and this and that. And then it's still, well, how do you not go home and just pull the covers over your head? I, I think I've talked with you about this because we've done shows together. And I've been very lucky that the music scene has embraced me, but opening for bands as a comedian is the hardest type of gig because music is loud and it commands your attention and everyone there is used to talking when there's not music. I was hosting a show at the Music Hall of Williamsburg, which is a lot of people. And it was organized as like a Jersey night with one of the guys from Gaslight Anthem and the Bouncing Souls co-headlining. And that Bouncing Souls crowd was just like Jersey Shore drunk punks. And if I mentioned references to being from New Jersey, they'd pay attention for a little bit and any of my actual material bombed and they booed me and it was bad. And then every time I went back out to introduce the next band, I was booed off stage again. It's like, man, this is sobering, <laughs> but I love that I have this story. What kind of jokes were you telling? I would be talking to the crowd and engaging individuals and being a little more hard-edged than I usually am about like going back and forth with people when they were yelling stuff at me. And that would work and keep their attention. And then I'd try to do a joke that was like a written joke. Boom. No one's paying <laughs> attention. Eventual booze. And now I've learned with opening for bands a couple things which is one, you're going to do a lot more crowd work than you're used to. You're going to have to abandon ship on material more often than not. And the number one thing you can do is have the front person of the headlining band introduce you on the God mic in the venue. I've never heard that called a God mic. Yeah, that's what we call it. If I was opening for you, I would beg you to be like, just please do me a favor and get on the <laughs> mic and be like, hey, everybody, it's Jeff. We'll be out in a minute. But first, we got this guy. He's a comedian. It's Gethard. That gives you probably a two minute window where they'll give you a chance. I feel like I'm actually full of self-doubt right now because I'm like, I'm not that cool anymore. The pandemic has actually been very positive for me in, in, in a couple ways. One, I get to spend more time with my family and my son in his first year of life. Beautiful. But then professionally, I've learned to do a lot of soul searching and go like, it's cool if I'm not the like in your face troublemaking comedy rebel anymore because if i'm going to be honest about where i'm at it's going to be a lot of jokes about raising a kid and moving to the suburbs and and getting obsessed with lawn care one of the things i've, I've always greatly admired about you and have turned to you for advice for in the past which is i've realized for any artist this pandemic really is a once in a lifetime opportunity to hit the reset button on whatever you want and that could mean your art itself 
but I've done a lot of soul searching about like my approach. Yeah. And being like, I only want to play certain types of venues moving forward. I think comedy's getting weird and dark in a lot of ways. I think I have the ability to maybe go play music venues and I think I can do house shows. I need to really be on top of making sure the ticketing fees at these places are not ridiculous if they have to exist at all. I had to fight really hard to say the maximum ticket price that I want people to pay is $20 tops. That's I, awesome. I, I don't want to perform only for people who, if they bring a date, can spend a hundred plus bucks in a night. We get into heated discussions every tour where I've been like, it has to be $15 or less tickets to the spot where now we're playing rooms that are sizes that just literally will not do a $15 ticket. And so I'm just always like, okay, well, how can we get this price as low as possible? Because I feel like the amount people are expecting anybody to spend on like entertainment, music or comedy. Let's get rid of the word entertainment for a second, because every now and then, Chris, you and I, we do something that's not particularly entertaining. <laughs> I have whiffed hard on I've whiffed hard on a few big projects. So yeah. But like the thing where <laughs> you go and you just feel something, which is something that music and comedy and like plays or film things just provide for people. It I feel like that's a universal thing that shouldn't hinge on whether you have a hundred dollars of disposable income yeah and i'm really respectful of also like venue venues are hosting me yeah and they need to make money too yeah and i get that the special that i'm out promoting that that is, this is ostensibly a part of even though we haven't talked about it because i'm terrible at promoting show out now on mnn what is it that is? <laughs> <laughs> that's all free on YouTube. this is a new special called half my life yes i shot it at 10 venues and three of them are closed now so i get that sometimes they're going to want to charge a little more money because they got to survive right now so i get it yeah not me i don't understand it your special seems awesome the gator one the i, I only saw the trailer but the, oh the i should have sent it to you i'm show. sorry let's just watch it now and we'll do a live <laughs> like a mystery science theater yeah for a movie that no one has access to <laughs> that's the type of thing where nor like my instinct is like yeah let's do it let's get and then i'm like oh wait i'm supposed to be promoting a thing and then i'm gonna give it away because i'm an idiot yeah the gator stuff was wild I was psyched that happened. How do you set that up? And then were, was there an audience there aside from the Gators? There were other people there, vultures that descended upon the scene as the animal handlers through the Gators meet. That is true. It's in the special. So yeah, probably my best joke by the time I filmed this special was about this uh, very sort of like fringy amusement park called Gatorland in Orlando. The whole joke was comparing Gatorland to Disney World and how they operate. And people really came to like it, especially on the road. And I worked on it for at least six or seven years before I filmed it. And it had grown into this epic thing with three parts because Gatorland found out about it. And the Orlando Sentinel weirdly wrote about it. I'm reading all these quotes from Gator, and I thought they were going to be real mad at me. They loved it. They followed me on Twitter, and I, I was just like, will you let me come do a set at Gatorland? And they were totally down. They built like a fake brick wall with a Gatorland Comedy <laughs> Club logo, and they got 30 full-grown alligators to come sit on this patch that was effectively the stage. I think the smallest one was like nine feet long or something. And yet they threw a bunch of meat and they all crawled up. And then 
all these vultures started descending from the sky and stealing the meat. And then the gators started fighting the vultures and the gators were fighting each other. And I was trying to do jokes and it was, it was really fun. And it's what ends the special. It's a spoiler, but it's in the trailer and I'm happy people know about it. But yeah, the Gatorland joke comes halfway through the special and then it ends with the Gatorland. I was really psyched because I got to put a soundtrack on it because I did it tour documentary style and you're on it, which is awesome. And then it ends with me performing for Gators while Jawbreaker is playing. They gave me a song, which was a huge honor. <laughs> psyched about that footage. That's sick. That's cool. So you played a show, huh? I've started doing a couple shows. We did some outdoor shows in the summer and fall, and then that was shut down. Yeah. And I've come back. Last night I did an outdoor show. Is that your first show since the second spike? I've done three indoor shows in the past two weeks, and it felt scary, but so good. I was hitting a point where I was even wondering if I wanted to do it anymore. I was doing all this sure. pandemic soul searching. When you take a break at this age for this long, yeah. you're just like, what the fuck do I need to come back for in a way? How do you deal with it? Because I'm in the same I don't know. Spot. I haven't done it yet. Yeah. I'm just, I'm excited to play. That That's all I'm thinking of. Are they scheduling shows? Like, are you getting set up for the fall? We're getting set up for November, December. We wanted to not be the first band right. that was touring right. throughout all this. I'm just, I'm psyched that we get to play again. That's going to be really, really fun. But I'm also like, hey, what's my body going to be like? We're going to see. I was actually surprised how good it felt because... Like I mentioned before, I'm just really wary of comedy and comedians right now. But coming back, I was like, there's people and the people laugh. And if they were having a bad day, now they're laughing. That makes me feel good. There's a certain amount of energy that just courses through one's veins as a performer. Feeling that la a lack of that energy has just mm -hmm. been weird. It's mm -hmm. a hard thing to put into words. It doesn't surprise me that you're like, oh, it felt good. Of course it fucking felt good. It's this part that's like intrinsically connected to your well-being and also just it's the thing you do and then you skip this amount of time and you're like if i then if i come back is it just like who even cares that you're back you know and not that i fear that but it's just i don't know we get conditioned to think that like at a certain age you're either like playing greatest hits or you fucked up and I think you and I are both like, no, I still want to make weird shit and still want to push in a way that I'm not supposed to. I am so shocked to hear that you're feeling that too. What? I, dude, well, no, because dude, I've been so excited. I feel like when we first met was around when you were transitioning from Bomb into your solo stuff. Yeah. I've just seen it grow and grow. And Laura Stevenson, after she played my show and we got to know each other, she's like, you and Jeff need to talk. Like, <laughs> you think similarly in a lot of ways. And I feel like I've just seen it grow and I've been so proud of you. And I've done a couple of things that straight up nobody liked or cared about. And it happens. It's part of this game, but it was scary. And yeah. to hear your feeling like almost identical feelings is eye-opening. I wonder if there's any musician who didn't feel that way, you yeah. know, or yeah. just performer. It's just a weird, there's some, it's said that dawned on me throughout this, that's just, we're familiar with a certain kind of chemical dopamine reaction yes. happening within us every day. I don't know if you get like this, when you come back from tour, there's like a couple of days where it just feels like an emotional crash. And then this whole thing has been this weird 
take some time for yourself thing, but also like within the uh, confines of this strange emotional haze. I'm sorry to fucking be talking about the pandemic. Outside of any people who are out there tired of hearing it, it's actually reassuring in a way. I hate that you're feeling that too, but it's reassuring because I feel like ultimately what you're saying is like during this past year and a half, like when you remove all the dopamine hits and like the eye contact with the people who you make things that mean to them, I haven't been able to avoid the fundamental question of, but who are you really? I haven't been able to dodge that anymore. That's a scary question. I think the scary thing is like, did you find the answer? I don't really know. I know I've been doing another thing. Yeah. I don't know what that means. (laughs) And I'm also like, I have a son and a mortgage now and those are beautiful things but it's also oh, a no, son I, and a mortgage both beautiful things beautiful thing the home is a beautiful thing the mortgage <laughs> is not the mortgage is scary but it's i have this house i have this life and my beautiful wife my beautiful son and also if this comedy thing dries up i don't know what else to do at this point it's been 21 years and i don't really know who i am beyond it and my last book didn't sell well at all and it's, and like i keep saying that's fine oh, it happens. It's fine, but it's scary. And now this special is the next big thing. It's going to tell me a lot about where I'm at. It's scary when you put something out. You're just like, oh, all right, yeah. I'm going to figure out if anyone still likes what I'm doing. But dude, that's why I don't think I told you. I laughed so hard at the ska thing <laughs> yeah. to, to, to redo your own album That's kind of a, a ska gather- cover album. <laughs> that's is- like Gethard level commitment. Oh, it's beautiful. Thanks, Chris. I'm glad you liked it. It's such a funny idea. And I actually think probably very meaningful to, it's been fascinating for me to read about the rebirth of ska. Oh, currently? In the underground. Yeah. It's really cool. You read about some of the people driving it and I'm like, this is awesome. This feels like an energy that's like, I've seen it bubble up in certain areas and an energy that I don't necessarily have anymore at my age and experience level that I see it still existing and I'm like, awesome. I feel like you still foster that with Planet Scum for sure. Yes. And you know, I, I know what it is and I get to participate in it, but it'll never be new again. I think a lot about the Gethard Show. I think about it almost every day because that's what a hard chapter of life to close. And I remember the feeling when we were on cable and I'd, I'd sneak upstairs a little earlier than they would normally tell me to. I'd go into the back of the studio and the house band would be playing the warm up music and my friend Connor would be doing these idiotic stunts to warm up the crowd. And a lot of the kids who were sitting there were people who had come to 40, 50, some of them like 100 episodes on public access and just hung out in the studio. And I'm going, man, all these people stuck with me. Hallie's literally family right now. My friends, Bethany and Keith, met through the show. They're married. They have a kid now. Aww. Four other, co- they're, they're about to have their third kid. And I got to stand in the back of the room and go, man, like these people are, some of them are literal family. A lot of them feel like chosen family. All these friends, like we fought hard. I got them jobs. Like that is a feeling that I'm not going to feel again. And that's okay. But it's weird to see that little ska movement and be like, they're having that right now. And they they all point to you as one of the spirit guides, so to speak. It's nice of anybody to think of me in any positive way whatsoever. But like the reality is that I didn't know that shit was like popping off this hard. Even though I'm in a ska band, <laughs> the Bruce Lee band, I didn't know like how hard shit was popping off until like 
d- throughout the pandemic. It's like, oh, wow, people are talking about ska. And like a, a few bands who like I had known from Bomb the Music Industry days are just still be keeping at it. And there's a few new bands and it's not really like a new wave or anything like that, as everybody keeps referring to. It's just kind of like, oh, the critical eye has is starting to look upon the ska scene a little less unfavorably. It seems like it's very open and accepting. You could be whoever you want in this world, which is probably why it's, it's like resonating with you and resonating with me. I'm just like, fuck yeah, the kids, like people do with the ska scene now or they've got a good mentality and it's cool. It's good to see like a palpable energy coming from somewhere. Yes. With a little bit of a fuck you to it. And it's heartfelt. That's why they love you. You've always included, like, you've had ska songs on records that weren't full ska records and songs that have ska breakdowns in the middle. All of us who grew up on Less Than Jake and Skank and Pickle, it became extremely easy to make jokes about ska pun names and to roll our eyes at it. You never did that one time. And you're like someone who means a lot to people and who's put out albums recently that really hit people in the guts. And I bet the reason the, the, the ska kids love you is you're like one of the people from our generation who very publicly was like, I'm not going to apologize for liking this music that has made me so happy over the years. <laughs> Isn't that a low bar to set for a genre? Like you don't even have to make <laughs> yeah, music. I mean... You just have to like not publicly <laughs> be ashamed of it. And then, no, it's, I think it's sweet. It's really, it feels like an honor. I love it. I don't know. I love it. It's funny. <laughs> I find it so weird that in the last handful of years, comedy has become the cultural canary in a coal mine. Like Cosby, that was all set off by Hannibal Burris. Look at how many famous comedians got caught up in the Me Too scandals. And, and I think what's happening in the comedy scene as a reaction to that is some of it naturally in the face of all this stuff and some of it engineered by a lot of think pieces that that sort of made up premises about the comedy scene being really divided and angry at each other Mm -hmm. and polarized. And I don't think that was real at first. I think these publications reached out to comedians and would say, what do you feel about the people on the other side of the line? And then those quotes show up and it becomes very real. And it's living on the edges right now where there's a lot of people going, fuck cancel culture, fuck PC people, fuck snowflakes. And they're selling a lot of tickets to people who respond like that. On the other end, I think a lot of the people who are really prioritizing fighting against that are finding that comedy is not necessarily the avenue that gets there most quickly. And there's a lot of comedians who are extraordinarily progressive, who share values that I share, but where I go. So there's also maybe some people in that scene who have found that they can sell a lot of tickets by doing that in an artificial way, which only Mm -hmm. waters down the people who are doing it genuinely, who have a stake in it and who are sacrificing for it. So it's really wild to live in the middle of that and go, I just want to connect with people and tell stories and tell jokes and experiment like in my new special part of why I I was psyched to do it the way I did it as like half tour doc half special was because I'm at my best when chaos comes about and it erupts and like I have this great footage in Autobar which is my favorite venue in the country is the Autobar in Baltimore 
And this girl got on stage. Her dad was a wrestling coach and she beat the shit out of me demonstrating moves and like really hurt me. And I was able to capture oh, that. Chris. But I'm like, that. I just want to be the guy. I want to be able to tell some heartfelt stories and hit people that way. I want some chaos to erupt at my shows. Heartfelt stories that get the shit beaten out of me. It's Is there true. anything that, wrong with that? That's probably the way to describe my entire career that people know me for. But it feels so much like you need to take a side right now. And I'm finding that the this sort of libertarian-ish, tougher people, mm -hmm. it's really wild because there are parts of what they say that I, I do agree with. I, I do believe in free speech heavily. There are people on that end of the spectrum that I think are making points that defend that. And then there's a million people just using it as an excuse to say hurtful things. Yeah. I hate that. And a, a few of the people who, in my opinion, are there have taken some public pot shots at me. I'm like, you don't like me. And then the progressive people, I think, feel like I should be stepping up more. And I don't necessarily know how. I think it just comes back to what you were saying earlier was just got to be honest i don't know i don't even blame anybody it's just the way we're fucking the the last like few years have been i think people might say like lawn sign liberals type situation mm -hmm. and you're like i don't know i believe in these messages that this person's saying but by watering it down are we ever going to get to the real answer and then if people are performatively doing it it's what are the people who performatively say shit what do they really believe in what do they really want yes. is it safe to have everybody be part of a thing but then you're like also we need more people to be on the progressive side of things if we want shit to move forward because it's a it's an uphill battle yeah we seem to forget that there is middle ground sometimes between some people and it's scary to value that sometimes because it feels like a slippery slope of okay and now you believe this fucked up that you're like no i'm just saying the problem is it's the fucked up people saying the thing i know i don't want to get in their corner because all the fucked up people have been empowered because we don't have people who get to those positions who are like good people yeah you know one of the things that's making me so sad in comedy is there are people making jokes and making art where i look at it, i go whoa you're sticking your neck out that's interesting it's smart, it's funny, it's making me think. And then very quickly, in my opinion, what will happen is there are a lot of other people who go, oh, that person took that risk. It worked out okay for them. Now I can be, like you say, the performative version of that and I can make money. Yeah. And it's sad. I guess that's just art. So there you have it, everybody. The history of art for me and Chris. Yes. Someone <laughs> does something genuine, someone rips it off, and everyone's sad. And a bunch of people who are nerds, <laughs> me and Chris, complain that like the old thing was better and i also gotta say too i'm not putting myself on a pedestal i've made cool shit i'm proud of i've made awful stuff too i'm not saying i'm the ultimate example of, of the pure way to do this far sure. from it one thing i've been thinking about is like the old gethard show felt pretty progressive in its time certainly yeah it felt like this step forward and then i go if we made it in 2021 with the same content that we were making it in 2012, it wouldn't feel progressive at all. It would be regarded as an insane show and hopefully people would still like it, but I got to get out of the way. Yeah. And I'm totally okay with that. Get out of the way. Let the other people have the spotlight as far as being the ones trying to change things. Like I was trying to change things back then. Sure. But also like, I don't think you're trying to change things because you want that spotlight. I think you're trying to change things just because it's in your nature to want to do something new and something creative. I don't feel like I've been making any music or art 
with the frame of mind that like I have a window in which I can do this. I'm just surfing a wave over here. It feels like you're doing the same thing. And you know what too? I had a stretch where I really was able to because I was able to hire a writer's room and I don't pat myself on the back very hard. In fact, I'm full of self-doubt, but before it was a thing people were talking about, I was filling my writer's room and my hires with different types of people. Not to score any points, but because I go, this just allows the show to have a wider scope of ideas. Yeah. And when ideas come up that I can't do, we're going to probably have somebody on staff who can take that ball and run with it under the umbrella of this show. And now it's a platform. That's cool. That felt good. Planet Scum, I'm like, I want to make it something that's a platform for all kinds of people. So that's what I can do. And then I'll go make jokes about being a dad and how I don't like Dr. Yeah. Seuss books and how my lawn has too much crabgrass and it makes it, because that's what I got right now. But if I can use my points of experience or anytime I'm in a position where I am able to pass the ball, that's what I can do right now. Because I, I only can make jokes from my experience. And right now my experience is like really beautifully lame. At the end of the day, it's like outside of any like sort of like socio political goals in like helping other people, it's also just really not fun and gratifying to see good people catch momentum. And if you can encourage people or help that momentum grow, that's awesome. Yeah, I never could quite understand the concept of a band getting super popular and then being like, all right, fuck everyone in our scene, fuck all of our friends. Yeah. We're, we're gonna start stepping it up and do this. I don't understand why you wouldn't wanna bring everybody else up with you. I feel like maybe that's why we are just like kindred spirits in a way that like, we are always like, nah, man, got to bring the family too. Yeah, but then I, I, now I'm going to get really vulnerable. And if it wasn't you, we wouldn't go down this oh. rabbit hole. But I should let you know this is being recorded. I feel comfortable getting there because we've gotten there very naturally. But it's all there's also something I've been dealing with, which is like sad, which is I think of it the same way. Bring the family with you. And there's some people who have really felt like family. And then you realize, oh, we're not working together anymore. Now I never hear from you. Or even things got yeah. are now weird between us. Like the Gethard show, there's a few relationships there where I'm, I just get so sad at, at how they went post-show. And I got to realize, first of all, this show was weird and it emotionally affected everybody <laughs> involved in it. And it was once in a lifetime and it's my name on it and I represented yeah. it to them and I had a lot of pressure on me. So maybe I said or did something that made people wary. Possible in that situation to make bad decisions. It is. That's something that we don't forgive ourselves yeah. for, but like you can make a bad call. I was never lacing into people like these stories you hear about Ellen, but I'm like, there were times where I felt like I was being squashed with pressure and maybe I wasn't at my best or whatever. But then it's also like that sad thing of being an artist. When a project ends, you do move on. Yeah. And I have to not get my feelings hurt by that. All you can hope for is that you bump into that person at some point in the future and you're cool. Yeah. You lose touch with people because circumstances just change and it's not even necessarily because anybody did anything wrong. It's just like life goes on. Yeah. And then it hits a point where I'm like, oh, like you're not answering my texts anymore. And then I sit there I go, again. I go, I guess I burned you in some way. I didn't realize. And that's on me. There's people out there having the same conversation about me. And it, it loops back around to what we were saying before about you go out, you travel, it's a piece of you. You come back from a tour, you have these like strange feelings. There's this weird dopamine. At the end of the day, we are modern carnies. Yeah. We travel, we're transient. It's based in the moment. 
it's based in the momentum of where things are going and what you're finding. It's based on a show. Yeah, exactly. And I've actually become friends with a few pro wrestlers. And I think so much of it is because their lifestyle is in many ways analogous Yeah, to being a comedian. The same reason I feel like I've developed very genuine friendships with like you and Mikey and Laura and a number of people. You find the other wanderers and... You accept that, oh, I might not see you for a year because you might be traveling in one direction and I might go in the other. Sure. Then when you're home, you want to deal with your real life people and stuff. And I might see not see you for a year, 18 months, but someday we'll cross paths again. Have you had in these pandemic self-questioning, and in my case, won't speak for you, midlife crisis moments of wondering what it's going to be. Yeah, watch yourself. Be. I'm at the end of my life. <laughs> I've started to have the fantasies of maybe I want to just do my podcast, which in a lovely way supports me. Yeah. And then maybe I should just see if some comic book store around here needs somebody to work the front register a couple of days a week. Like I've started to have the, should I go find a part-time gig fantasies? I've definitely thought at multiple points in my life, what if I just drop off the face of the earth? And move somewhere in the Pacific Northwest and be like, hey, do you need someone to work at your record store or your coffee shop? Hallie calls bullshit all the time on me. Yeah. Whenever I'm like, I think I might need to quit. Christine too. <laughs> Hallie's like, you would die. You'd go insane. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking about this yesterday of like, I'm entering chapter three of my life. Wow. Like the first chapter was birth through figuring out I wanted to go for it as an artist. That was around like 20, 21 years old. And then the next chapter was from 21 till the end of the Gethard show. And if you think about that, like career suicide and beautiful anonymous and all these things that happened within that window. And then I go, oh, and then the Gethard show ended and I had a kid and I'm starting to grow up and it's a new chapter, and I'm aware of it from the start this time. Your life is way different. So different. If yeah. I started a thing called the Chris Gethard show now compared to 2009, it would be unrecognizable compared to what that show was. That's cool. Like I was a mentally unstable person. Think about, dude, how many bits did I do throughout the course of that show that were people actually physically harming me? Dozens. You go back, you look at the public access days. Yeah. I was being electrocuted, <laughs> kickboxers coming in and physically beating me, dominatrixes like torturing me live on camera. And I'm proud of that. But now- yeah. The show would be like a quiet, contemplative thing. It's so different. But what's so cool about that is that you still have Beautiful Anonymous. Yes, Beautiful yes. Anonymous is so good. I don't know how Thanks. much I've told you that, but like it's something that the world needed that you made. I Thank think, you. And nobody else was doing it. it. They're starting to. They're start. There's all these like confessional secret podcasts coming out now. Fuck all these losers. Do you get ten percent? <laughs> What's that about? What's that about? I just read an article about like this is becoming the new genre that's getting really hot. Is like participatory secret telling. And but the article, I was glad because usually what happens with my stuff is there will be an article about this new wave of something, and it doesn't mention a thing I did years prior. And this one said something very kind about like probably the thing that broke the seal on this was this podcast that started in 2016. It gave me some credit. It's interesting because that's like kind of a secret evolution of you. It you was know? the turning point and I didn't know it then. And it's still going. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be going throughout your fatherhood and beyond your death, you'll still be doing it from the grave. And 
maybe it's just because it matches my mindset now. But in a lot of ways, it's actually the thing I'm most proud of. It's definitely the platform I have that gets to put other people first. It truly is putting other people first. You're not steamrolling the conversation at all. If you listen to like the first few months of it, I am because I thought it was going to be comedy. The back catalog used to be behind a paywall and I fought really hard. I got it out from behind the paywall. I'm psyched, That's awesome. psyched about that. But I see now that it's back out, I see people finding those episodes for the first time. And I'm like, Chris, you were really mean to this caller in episode four. And I'm like, yeah, I thought it was going to be like people call up and mess with me and I I joke with them and we roast each other and yeah. cuz that was the Gethard show. Yeah, phone you calls. thought it was going to be basically like Gethard show phone calls the podcast. Exactly. I thought it was going to be like a a Gethard show side project basically and it became this heartfelt like cultural thing and it's really grown. It might just be because it matches where I'm at now, but I'm like, I'm so proud of that thing. I pitched Beautiful Anonymous, I think three or four times, and they were like, ah, maybe come up with something else, maybe more improv-based, have some characters. And I just kept saying, give this one a chance, and it's going to work. And I'll never, ever forget the first time we did a test episode. I tweeted out the phone number, and like 30 seconds later, the producer like looked up with this confused look on her face, and she's like, there's already four calls coming in. And I was like, yeah, people want to get their shit out in the world. Like when Think about it like this. Everyone who listens to the millions of celebrity interview podcasts sits there and goes, what would I say if I was interviewed? The way that we process celebrity culture, just like the, the things we read about are always like actors or athletes or people who are just in one field of work. When every field of work is interesting in its own way and nobody ever talks to anybody else whose work is not being a public figure. That, that's what drew me to your podcast, just acknowledging that everyone's story is interesting and that makes your story interesting as well. And you don't have to feel like you have to strive for this impossible goal of being like an A-list movie star or anything. Just live your truth and fucking be happy. And, or not and fucking be happy. It's also taught me, like being the guy who takes the phone calls too, and so many of them get dark. Yeah. I've realized it, it has transformed me. Like I'm a much less ego driven person and in my day to day life, like much less self focused and, and more patient with people because you, re I've realized, oh, there are so many people at any given time having the worst month of their life. Like if I'm at a bank and there's only one cash machine and the person in front of me cannot figure it out, it used to drive me insane. And now I sit here and have these thoughts like, they might be getting ransom money for kidnapped to relic. I don't know. Yeah, I've yeah. talked to so many people where you're like, what did you just say? You're just walking around thinking everybody has had a loved one kidnapped, potentially, that you're looking at. I'm working on this new joke. I'm actually thinking really hard about, like, at my show, mathematically, someone here is having the shittiest day. Like, if someone's having the worst day, it's just a fact. And my goal is to cheer them up and anybody else who feels good about this show i'm psyched but i want that person with the shittiest day to get the most out of it and when i thought of that joke i started sitting around and it got my gears turning almost like more life philosophy where i go if all of us treated everyone we had an interaction with under the sad assumption that they were going through something extraordinarily hard and we set the bar at treat them as you would if you knew that was a fact that's a way that, that I can make the world a better place because I can do it one by one.
even if you're not having a bad day and I give you that much benefit of the doubt that you are, that's going to be me at my best and most compassionate and, and gentle and kind. So do that. I think about that all the time. You could treat people kindly. And that's really all you can do. I don't know if it's all you can do, but it is very much something that you can do. Our self-protective instincts train us from an early age to not do that. You think that the next generation is going to be different, though, because they all got parents like you? I actually think it starts with the millennials and Gen Z. I look back and realize my TV show which gained a real reputation for kind of honesty and compassion, which was kind of like the early gears of this thing that I'm trying to crystallize and verbalize more succinctly now. A lot of the people watching, dude, you get this too. I had people coming up to me. I was watching your show in middle school and now I'm a comedian. Yeah. I'm like, whoa, hold the phone. You were in sixth grade watching my show. That's why I realized the reason that cult latched onto that show is because our generation and look, I'm sure growing up in Long Island, it was the same way. Growing up in North Jersey in the 80s and 90s, like you you learn to be cynical and watch your back. Like we just did. We grew up in an era where we were constantly told that Satanists were going to kidnap us and never trust anyone in a van. And yeah, like, yeah. We're told and then like it's been, I was just in that documentary, but you look at a place like Action Park and it's, oh, how people went there and died and there were no repercussions. And you're like, yeah, that's fucked up. That's how we grew up thinking like no one cared and we were going to get kidnapped if we walked around outside. We needed to be self-protective. If I wanted to stop being a mess and being depressed, I realized I needed to embrace empathy and look outward and not just beat myself up inward. Can the base level starting point be protect your people, protect your community. Don't just protect yourself. Yeah. I think they're the ones that are going to take that ball and start to really foster it. And then hopefully by the time my kid is of an age where he has agency and the ability to find who he is, it'll just be standard. I don't know. Almost like with my stuff, just like feeling that pain makes me sad that anybody is feeling that kind of pain. Yes. And just like, I don't know. I don't know. You ever think about that shit? I, it's career suicide is the one that fits what you're saying for me because, sure. I mean, I was talking about the hardest aspect of my life and it lasted for years and people keep finding it. And it's intense. Yeah. And I'm making eye contact with people who start crying. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm a, I started as a comedian. And there's jokes in here. But what is this? And Yeah. When you're trying to bring people joy and with that comes like the resonance of a deeper sadness. The thing that I think all good comedy, movies, music anything does is it just it hits all those things at once, yeah you know? i think it, it it presents itself as what it is and then it pulls you slightly in another direction too those are my favorite things but then i feel bad about making people sad i do too i really do too it's like such a point of pride to like be like oh i made at least one thing that helped some people who needed help i made one thing that made lonely people feel less lonely and it's a loneliness i know intimately amazing and then also i hate that they live in that sadness but like i also on some nights might get hit hard by that because i am still fucked up and depressed sometimes yeah and somebody comes up to me and they're like oh i watched this thing you did in 2012 and you said this thing and then they'll quote me and i'll be like i said that <laughs> and like oh my god i feel bad for that guy who said that and it was me look i got it tattooed on my arm
Thanks for listening to the Talk House podcast, and thanks to Jeff Rosenstock and Chris Gethard for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please follow the podcast on your favorite service, and also check out TalkHouse.com for all sorts of written pieces as well. Today's episode was produced by Melissa Kaplan, and the Talk House theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.